Good morning, and you're listening to Indie Live Radio. This is the latest in our series of programmes called Changing Minds, Moving Forwards. And this week, it comes to us courtesy of Grassroots Oban for a meeting which they ran back in March 2020. The speaker at their meeting was Dr. Paul Gillespie. He is a senior research fellow in the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin. He's also a writer on foreign affairs for the Irish Times. And the theme of the meeting was Ireland and Scotland, looking at our mutual histories and connections and comparing and contrasting those, especially now post-Brexit and in relation to the campaign for Scottish independence. It was a very vibrant meeting, lots of questions afterwards, and we hope you enjoy listening to it now. Here it is. Well, just to say I'm delighted to be able to speak to you um, uh, 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 from Dublin uh, on this huge subject of Ireland and Scotland and Brexit uh, and the consequences uh, of it for us all. Um, now, I'm, I'll speak for about 40 minutes or so. Uh, I want to draw a good lot on work uh, I've been doing as a journalist and uh, with the Irish Times and as an academic researcher I'm based in University College Dublin uh, in the Institute for British Irish Studies, which is an institute uh, that's been studying uh, the British Irish relationship really since the uh, Good Friday Agreement uh, in 1998. Uh, and uh, I've done a huge amount of work on this, including uh, uh, plenty of work on Scotland. Um, but uh, so I really want to. It's, it's useful from my point of view uh, to recap for, as, as it were, a general audience on some of this research I've been doing and it really to inject ideas uh, <clears throat> and discussion into our, into our, into our, um, uh, into our follow-up uh, discussion. Um, I'm going to be rather more analytical than advocating, if you like, uh, um, uh, because I think that's the way to get to, to get bring forward some ideas on how best to analyze uh, what we're seeing before us. And there are lots and lots, of course, of comparisons to be drawn between Ireland and Scotland, both politically, but also historically. And I'll draw on some of those as well. And just to say personally, uh, I have a number of Scottish links. Uh, my father's mother, Jess, uh, her, fam her father moved uh, from Aberdeenshire uh, to Kilkenny in the 1850s, where uh, her grand, uh, her father was an estate manager there, uh, having worked in the same kind of capacity around around Scotland, and so I grew up uh, in in a uh, on my father's side uh, was a Presbyterian background. My grandfather was from Armagh in the north of Ireland, uh, came to Dublin in the early 1900s, uh, and I grew up there. Uh, 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 later on. So that's that's one set of backgrounds. And I was there last year in Aberdeen, uh, um, or the year before, uh, um, at a conference where there's an Institute for uh, Scottish-Irish Studies in the university there, and made some contacts uh, on that occasion. Um, I've worked then in, in various capacities as a journalist in the Irish Times, uh, where I was a foreign editor and a, 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 an assistant editor. Um, as a researcher in various institutes, including the Institute for uh, International and European Affairs in Dublin, uh, where 
over the years since the 1990s, we've had a study group looking at uh, Britain and Europe and the way it worked out and the consequences for Ireland. We've done uh, three books and a whole lot of studies on this. And again, the Scottish issue has come up repeatedly, of course, in that setting. Um, and one of the points we've made is that looking at uh, the UK and Europe, uh, there's a deep issue of sovereignty involved. Uh, and you have an absolute uh, vision of sovereignty, which is now coming to the foreground, particularly with the hard Brexiteers. Um, and it means that there's a great difficulty in conceiving the sharing of sovereignty uh, amongst this tradition uh, and these politicians in Britain. And of course, that affects uh, internal relations within the United Kingdom, as well as our external relationship, notably, of course, their relations with Scotland and Northern Ireland. And I, I look at that as I go through uh, and, and give you some ideas about how to analyze that. I'm involved in this institute in, in UCD in a project on constitutional futures after Brexit, it's called. And we're looking particularly at the intersection of potential constitutional futures in the UK and Ireland and how they intersect and work out uh, with one another. I've also been involved uh, in a, a very interesting study group um, uh, in University College London in the Constitution Unit there, uh, which is examining with the group of academics from, from London University, from um, uh, Dublin and Trinity and UCD, from uh, Belfast in Queens and University of Ulster and at the University of Pennsylvania, a working group on unification referendums on the island of Ireland. Uh, and we've published an interim report, which is available from the uh, UCL Constitution Unit website. And I'll go, I'll touch on that. And I'm also doing work with the uh, Centre for Constitutional Change in Edinburgh and with a, a number of other Scottish colleagues. Um, so um, that's, uh, um, uh, th those are some of the issues I touch on. And I'll also, when I look historically towards the end of, what I, of my remarks, I look at some of the very interesting connections uh, more close to Oban and Ireland, uh, in particular, uh, my friend Sam MacDonald's wonderful shielding, uh, looking over Loch Ative, which commemorates the old story of Deirdre of the Sorrows, and that links our two places together in, in, a, very, in, in, in a very compelling way. Now, first of all, I want to look at what I have headlined Scotland and Ireland now, and it's the particularly the context of the United Kingdom. Uh, the whole future of the United Kingdom is moving to the top of your political agenda uh, in Scotland, but also throughout uh, England and in other parts of the UK in a way that was uh, really unforeseen several years ago and is taking lots of people by surprise, including those in the major political parties. So this dual sovereignty crisis, as I describe it, externally vis-a-vis -vis the EU and internally vis-a-vis -vis the constituent elements of the UK is now coming to a head. It's been long in the making. It's been stoked though by the Brexit, by the departure from the, um, 
um, uh, from the European Union, uh, and of course the way that was carried and not carried, carried uh, through uh, England and Wales, but certainly not carried in Scotland and not carried either in Northern Ireland. And that differentiation uh, stokes up uh, uh, the consequences of this sovereignty problem. Um, the work that I'm doing is based on uh, uh, analysis of scenarios um, in, uh, in our institute in UCD. And I want just to describe some of this again as a contribution to uh, some ideas as how best to understand it. And what we did, we wanted to identify the drivers of change, potential political and major constitutional change uh, in the context of Brexit. So the first element we took was the nature of the Brexit uh, um, departure. And of course it wasn't specified uh, uh, and the whole debate has been whether it's going to be uh, hard or soft. That is more distant from the EU uh, uh, that the UK was departing from or closer to it. And in the event we have a hard version uh, next to no deal, perhaps as hard as you could get, pulling out of the single market and the customs union with all the consequences we're now seeing uh, flowing from that. And the other part, the other element that we looked at in drawing up these scenarios uh, was what we call the power dynamics in the United Kingdom itself, the level of centralization of, uh, of decision making and power uh, uh, as between Westminster, London, and again, the constituent units. Uh, and of course, one of the effects on the harder the Brexit, uh, the more these effects have uh, manifested themselves has been a recentralization of power uh, back to London as the uh, competences that the governing competences uh, that were in uh, in Brussels, such as trade and agriculture, for example, are recentralized back to London rather than being brought back to the devolved authorities where some of them uh, were meant to be. And you know better than I do the full consequences of that over the last three years. Now, if you combine these two driving forces, uh, we drew up scenarios. I'll just sketch them out here again as a contribution to our uh, later discussion. Excuse me. Uh, if you combine the hard Brexit uh, with the centralized power, uh, we, we drew a scenario up about the um, breakup of the UK, which is the most radical outcome. Um, and that would include uh, Scottish independence, uh, potential and, and actual Irish unification, uh, um, English sovereignty, Welsh independence too. I mean, you can, you can, you can draw this quite hard edged outcome. And uh, I mean, ostensibly, we've got this centralization of power and uh, the distant or hard Brexit. So this uh, potential scenario is very much on the cards. It's plausible. It may not be desirable. Some people desire it, some don't, but it's certainly plausible analytically. Uh, whereas, uh, had there been a closer outcome um, uh, uh, with the uh, softer Brexit, even though centralized power remained uh, uh, predominantly in London, there was the option of a renegotiated EU um, in which uh, uh, unionism would be reimagined uh, and uh, a reformist kind of approach uh, to Scotland uh, would, would have more opportunity to succeed. Uh, 
Uh, an alternative to that uh, would be where you have widely dispersed power and it's still a hard Brexit is what we call a differentiated outcome. And that's manifested most particularly in the outcome for Northern Ireland, which has stayed in this hybrid state, recognizing its unique, unique political aspects, uh, but where it's, it's, it remains in the, UK, in the EU customs union, but out of the single market with all the consequences specified in the protocol. And the fourth uh, scenario, roughly sketched, is the is the is the a federalizing UK, uh, and that would that would resolve in principle or in theory, according to its uh, um, uh, proponents, most of the problems around the UK of this dual sovereignty problem. But it requires uh, a much closer relationship with the uh, EU than is is allowed for by the hard Brexiteers, uh, and therefore the whole question of agency to achieve it is very hard to specify. Uh, the Labour Party has been working on this, but uh, it's unconvincing, it seems to me, uh, so far, and uh, you have to, you know, assess that. So those, those are sketching uh, from Dublin kind of analytical uh, picturing of the way the UK might go. Uh, and um, uh, this has huge consequences uh, for Ireland. Um, uh, thinking about the possible uh, futures involved, uh, we see uh, many of the political manifestations now. The reassertion uh, by the Johnson government of this centralized assertive unionism, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, his remark in passing about the disaster that, has, that was devolution reveals this. And again, it's I'm sure well covered and discussed in the Scottish terms. What strikes me is there's is there fascinating historical parallels uh, going on here. I'm reminded of the home rule movement of the 1880s and 1890s and that whole movement which prefigured uh, over 40 years Irish in the struggle for Irish independence, which ended up with violence, where you had after the home rule bill in 1893 fell <clears throat> after Gladstone's government, you had this so-called uh, attempt to kill home rule with kindness, uh, a so-called constructive unionism, where there was a lot of spending and, and attempts at land reform and actual land reform in Ireland, um, uh, but that was only broken by the parliamentary ar arithmetic when it changed in 1911. Now it's worth re recalling this because there are in this, in this uh, imperial structure of the UK, many of those kinds of historical parallels. Uh, it, uh, as we know, we didn't get home rule in Ireland. It was interrupted by the, by the, by the uh, First World War. And then there was a transition in that war to violence, to the 1916 rebellion, to the 1918 election, and then to the Irish War of Independence and the whole debate about revolution and violence and its role in achieving independence, uh, which we're now having to re remember 100 years on and are doing and attempting to come to terms with that. So those are those are parallels arising from the structure. The agency I mentioned earlier for change is hard to distinguish and one has to uh, uh, understand um, <clears throat> uh, uh, what's going on in unionism, in, in unions, 
and amongst unionists to come to grips with this. And of course, this is something, as we look at the consequences for Ireland of the way these forces work out, we have to understand uh, all of those elements much more clearly. If we're going to have uh, a debate as it's now opening up in Ireland about Irish unification as one of the consequences of what's happening, uh, we have to understand what unionisms are concerned with uh, throughout the UK, but particularly in the north of Ireland. And again, we've been doing work on this in our institute. We've published a special issue of a, of a journal on comparative unionism. And this is kind of preliminary to the really important discussions that we're going to be facing over the next five or 10 years, it seems to us, as these issues work themselves out. Now, they're working themselves out, secondly, in a major U context of the European Union, the European Union itself uh, after the UK's departure. Uh, and that departure, it's worth underlining, and I certainly argue this, uh, the fundamental weakness of the UK vis-a-vis -vis the EU came through uh, in these negotiations, notwithstanding uh, the assertion, uh, particularly by the Brexiteers, but on both sides of the uh, principle of sovereign equality. Um, this is uh, a state of 65 uh, or so, 66 million, uh, up against a, a, a continental entity of, of, of four or 500 million. Uh, somewhat reduced, of course, by Britain's departure, but the asymmetry of power uh, there is very visible in the negotiation. And the tattered, fragmented nature of that agreement that was reached the end of December is now beginning to work itself out, it seems to me, and, and this is, is showing itself up. And of course, one of the temptations for the politicians involved is to try and cover or mask that by blaming the other, and that's one of the issues that's going on. Uh, so if a disruptive approach is being sought. Um, uh, uh, it's being sought, I would argue, very much in the context of this, again, dual sovereignty question. And if we're getting roused, which we are, and are going quite deep-seated now about uh, the trustworthiness of this British government vis-a-vis -vis the Northern Ireland Protocol, where they've, for the third time, raised the issue of, 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 of breaching, uh, breaching uh, article, articles in the agreement, um, uh, you're up against um, uh, um, uh, an issue that is driven not only by the London's relationship with Brussels, but I would say too, uh, in, in a way to warn the Scots, you are going to vote in May, about the issue of borders and the disruptive element of borders. Uh, I think there's as much of an element uh, of internal politics going on here as there is of external politics. Now, I want to look at the way in which the um, UK and Ireland uh, uh, futures intersect. And again, I'm drawing on the work where the research we're doing. Um, in, in Ireland, the whole Brexit uh, crisis, uh, because it's brought Northern Ireland out of the EU against its majority vote, it's opening up a, a debate on unification. Uh, which goes alongside Scotland's own debate on, 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 on independence and its future. And the two are sort of, as it were, rolling together and they're structurally uh, related and intersected. Um, if you uh, look at this in Northern terms, um, it's striking what's happened in the last three years, uh, that the issue of unification has come uh, from being rather quiet 
uh, taken for granted, um, uh, but not in, in, as much in the foreground as it now is. Uh, and that's happened notwithstanding the uh, um, uh, re-establishment of power sharing, um, uh, and notwithstanding also uh, um, uh, uh, the attitudes of many people from a Catholic nationalist background uh, towards unity, which changed during the uh, uh, exercise of devolutionary power. Uh, it, because many people from a Catholic nationalist background are willing to accept a devolved settlement in the North of Ireland <clears throat> and not a unification uh, um, uh, scenario, uh, so long as it works. But if it doesn't work, if it becomes dysfunctional also by taking uh, the state out of the uh, EU, uh, the issue of unity as an alternative has, 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 has arisen once again. And it's driven by Brexit, by partly by demography, the, the census this year will show probably a Catholic majority uh, within the <clears throat> are within Northern Ireland. It's driven politically by competition looking to the assembly elections next year, where it's conceivable that those from a nationalist, Catholic and other background will actually have a majority over against unionism. Um, and uh, uh, so you've got these complexities opening up uh, and uh, an abstract issue is becoming much more concrete. Uh, one of the things we're doing in our research is we're examining how people are seeing this on the ground, how ordinary citizens are seeing this. Uh, there was a, a small citizens assembly was uh, held by our colleagues in Queen's University in 2019. They had uh, 50 people gathered and they particularly asked them about attitudes towards the status quo, that is the continuation of Northern Ireland in the UK, and um, the potential for Irish unification. And they asked them further <clears throat> about the possible shapes of a united Ireland, because it could be either devolved, which would continue the power sharing arrangements as we now have them in the North, uh, or it could be a unitary in which you no longer would have that power sharing arrangement and devolved <clears throat> uh, governance within Northern Ireland, but have a unitary state centered on Dublin. Uh, and in fact, we discovered that uh, for people, first of all, weren't aware that there would be alternative shapes for a united Ireland of that kind. And secondly, that those, as they became aware during that discussion, uh, during that day of the Citizens' Assembly, uh, particularly those from a Protestant Unionist background, were became much more interested in a unitary state than in a devolved one, partly because they saw the benefits of escaping uh, from the dysfunctionality of, as they see it, of the devolved power sharing arrangements so far. So we are doing uh, a similar exercise asking rather similar questions in the Republic in the next couple of months uh, and we're going to have a very interesting uh, evolution of attitudes and uh, description of, of attitudes as we go through that piece of research. Um, so in the um, in these intersections, not only is the issue of unification being raised uh, in Northern Ireland, but of course it's being raised in the Republic as well. And I want to give you just a, a, a brief, as it were, uh, outline of, of some of the issues that have come up in that debate. Uh, and again, I, 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 towards the end, I'll draw some parallels uh, with the way in which the whole Scottish independence question has been uh, 
uh, revived and reanimated by Brexit. Uh, there are lots of interesting parallels there. <clears throat> but again, the issue of a potential unification, while it's been inscribed uh, strongly in Irish nationalism, it's rather abstract, uh, not discussed in great any concrete detail. Uh, it's there as a kind of um, uh, um, piece of mythology or a piece of tokenism very often politically, but it's suddenly been made concrete by the, uh, the consequences of Brexit and the realization that the uh, uh, increased, increasingly unstable United Kingdom may, um, may force the issue onto an Irish agenda before people have had time to think it right through or prepare for it adequately. And therefore, people are kind of grappling and scrambling uh, to adopt positions on this, realizing that the pace of events may be much more rapid than they uh, previously understood. Um, uh, so the issue is now becoming uh, more strongly defined. It's partly polarized politically because, of course, Sinn Féin, as the strongest nationalist party in Northern Ireland, it's been uh, very much part of their political identity uh, um, uh, over the years. And it's driven <clears throat> in good large part by the um, uh, dissatisfaction of their constituency in Northern Ireland with the state of play there. And they are an All-Ireland party and they did exceedingly well in the um, <clears throat> elections one year ago, where they now are uh, um, potentially the largest party uh, um, uh, if it comes to another election. And they drive an agenda which demands <clears throat> preparation for um, uh, for Irish unification through the parliament, through citizens' assemblies, uh, through a ministry even. Uh, and in response to that, <clears throat> uh, the other parties, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the two um, uh, um, parties arising from the Irish Civil War, um, uh, who are now uh, unprecedentedly in coalition with the smaller Green Party, uh, but they have adopted what they called a shared island approach, uh, which is alternative to uh, immediate demands or prospective demands for unity, emphasize a gradualist approach to North-South relations, repairing <clears throat> the Belfast Agreement, Good Friday Agreement institutions, developing good economic, social, political, and cultural relations on the island um, <clears throat> uh, prior to, and if you like, as a condition for any further discussion about unity. Now, this is an evolutionary agenda could be seen towards a longer term unity perspective, or it could be seen as a, um, uh, as one in which um, uh, Ireland in the Republic would, if it works out this way, be happy with the reformed and changed United Kingdom so long as the borders remained open and relations, human and political and other relations, uh, remain open on the island of Ireland. So that's one set of issues that we're facing up to, uh, that between the gradualist approach and a preparatory approach. Um, and um, uh, there are those who say on the preparatory side, look, uh, this may, may much go, may go must, much faster than you're uh, anticipating, driven not least by developments in Scotland, of course. Um, you have to prepare for change. Uh, you have to think it through. Uh, you have to uh, think particularly about 
uh, whether the shape of a potential United Ireland would be devolved or unitary. Uh, you'd have to think, for example, about whether if it came to a referendums north and south, which are provided for by consent uh, in the Belfast Agreement, um, whether the government in Dublin would offer the model of United Ireland prior to any referendum or offer alternatively a process such as a constitutional convention, uh, which would be triggered in the event of a vote for unity. And that's a very interesting and important issue. Um, uh, the work we're, we've been doing, and I mentioned it uh, in with the um, uh, um, University College London Constitution Unit examines this question of potential unification referendums in Ireland in some detail. Uh, the interim report has been published and is available on their website, and we're preparing the final report now. It's a substantial uh, piece of work, something like 250 pages. It analyzes the context in which all this is happening, including some of the context I've outlined here, fills in gaps, uh, particularly about the configuration of referendums, North and South, the shape of an Ireland that would be an offer, <clears throat> this issue of the model or process, and also the effect of developments in the UK on developments in Ireland, this intersection effect that I mentioned. Um, in particular, uh, with the dynamics in Scotland, uh, the um, um, parliament elections in May, uh, the demands arising from that let us presume for an, another independence referendum, how that would work itself out, uh, um, uh, and the, the consequent effects on Northern Ireland and on the Republic uh, for this uh, are really uh, worthy of analysis and to be found in detail in that, in that report, which I recommend to you. Um, so in that kind of setting, it's very interesting to uh, see that for Scotland and Northern Ireland and the Republic, these issues of referendums, borders and EU membership are increasingly shared interests and concerns. So that, that makes, of course, for wonderful uh, opportunities for comparative political science analysis, but it also has real political consequences and we need to know what, uh, wh what these consequences are politically as citizens if we're going to make sense of it all in the next, uh, in the coming period. So that's, that's a kind of sketch of where we are now. I want just to refer, but briefly and very um, uh, um, impressionistically, uh, just to mention some of the, the wonderful history that we share uh, and which uh, must be in a way gets recontextualized because of the late the recent convergence politically and uh, other uh, constitutionally and other respects that I've been describing. Um, and one of the main issues, of course, is the different ways in which Scotland and Ireland got involved in the imperial uh, United Kingdom <clears throat> as it expanded from southeast England over the centuries, over the many centuries, uh, as it became a world empire uh, from the 18th and in 19th into the 20th centuries, uh, Ireland and Scotland responded very differently to that kind of empire, uh, imperial um, uh, power. Uh, uh, going earlier to the 
16th, 17th centuries, you have the whole issue of colonialism, settler colonialism, much of it driven into the northern part of Ireland from Scotland, from mainly from lowland Scotland, as we know, uh, and the, all of the effects of that, plus the effects of the Reformation and the religious changes, uh, the effects of Jacobitism. Uh, these, I'm just mentioning these uh, uh, commonalities and, and contested histories uh, to, uh, to contextualize any discussion we would have. Um, always uh, the distinction um, between Highland and Lowland Scotland and Ireland uh, comes through. And that particularly is the case, of course, when we go earlier to the early medieval and medieval uh, times. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, my friend Sam MacDonald, who's, who's in the audience, and my wife Deirdre and I have been, um, uh, I visited Oban uh, a couple of years ago uh, to uh, celebrate uh, the shielding that Sam has erected in memory of his uh, of, of, of his wife, uh, who died a number of years ago, uh, which commemorates the story of Deirdre of the Sorrows. I'm not sure if maybe you, you've, you're familiar with this, um, the great love story uh, of Deirdre and Nisha, uh, where Deirdre uh, fled with Nisha, her young lover, and they uh, went to Scotland, according to the story, but gathered around Lake Lochateve are, are all the place names recording that ancient story. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and it's in a very uncanny way. And the memorial uh, looks uh, over uh, this wonderful lake uh, and it, it, in a shilling and commemorates it. And I, I, I'd recommend you to visit and, and, and learn more about it if you haven't encountered it. Um, a, a message uh, when it was launched uh, in the presence of uh, Mike Russell uh, and Mark Hanafy, Mike Russell MSP and Mark Hanafy, the Consul General of Ireland uh, from Michael D. Higgins, uh, the Irish president. Michael D. said, there is no place on our islands more representative of that shared inheritance than Argyle, <laughs> once the home of the ancient Gaelic kingdom of Dalriada. It was there that Cúhollán, the warrior hero of Ulad, was said to have learned the arts of war and it was there that Deirdre, Deirdre sought sanctuary with Nisha and his brother, Arden and Anya. I am so pleased that a magnificent memorial will now rest forever on beyond glass, not far from Glan Etive, and may it stand as a monument, not only to the common past of the peoples of Scotland and Ireland, but to the shared destiny of our two ancient countries. And that captures very well the, um, uh, the uh, drama of, of, of this monument. Uh, Dirdi and I went to Iona uh, during that time and were entranced, of course, by, uh, by, by that monument and the links that it tells about, uh, as, as the later ones with Dalriada. Uh, and so, and the, the later ones, again, in different kind of contexts in the, in, the, in the 14th century with Robert Bruce. So you have all these links that are, uh, that are uh, re-remembered now, and uh, it's the, the history of memorials changes as history changes. And therefore it's worth, um, you know, reflecting on this as we talk about, and I'll conclude on these notes, some thoughts about what I would call Irish and Scottish futures. 
Uh, and I mean, I won't apologize for dwelling on, if you like, the macro politics, the constitutional aspects of this. They unfold from these dramatic events that we're living through. It's what I'm studying and it's what uh, I, any expertise I bring to bear. Uh, but I know that they're, uh, you know, they're regarded and it comes out in the citizens assembly work we're doing sometimes again as abstract, uh, but they translate into everyday politics and everyday citizen concerns uh, uh, in, in ways that are, uh, we must draw on. And that's the use of, of such uh, encounters as we're having this evening. Uh, there are lots of sympathies and a lot more knowledge uh, and active participation in Scottish-Irish affairs in all sorts of ways and levels. Uh, we have the rugby match coming up at the weekend. Uh, culturally, uh, uh, it, it, uh, through um, all sorts of uh, literary and other musical links, uh, uh, through re recent uh, exchange and study between the Irish government and the Scottish government of links between the two, a report published just in January, which is well worth looking at. Uh, the whole question of uh, Northern Ireland unionists and Protestantism and Orangeism uh, linked up to Scotland historically and what happens if, uh, if Scotland were to leave the UK, what happens to their political identity in that setting. So it's worth thinking about all sorts of futures. Geography won't change even if history does uh, and, and um, uh, we're going to need to think about futures and if you want to use the um, constitutional language, uh, that future could be in several different ways that are worth exploring, confederal. Uh, and the confederalism uh, denotes uh, states that agree to work together, but don't uh, pool their sovereignty in the fully fledged way that would happen in federations, uh, 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 but retain their independence uh, uh, to do what they want to do alone uh, and uh, agree on what they want to do together. Uh, I've been thinking about potential uh, unionism beyond the union. And it might take a confederal form and it would reassure unionists both in Scotland and Ireland that the links that were established partly institutionally through the Belfast Agreement, such as the uh, British Irish Council, British Irish Intergovernmental Conference, uh, but these are potential models of futures. One can think of confederal links between the Republic of Ireland and Scotland in order to facilitate uh, rapid EU membership after potential Scottish independence. That's being talked about in the literature. Uh, you one can think of other Irish-Scottish confederal links in that new setting of joint membership of the EU. Um, uh, one can think of in similar ways, uh, and uh, some colleagues that I've been working with uh, are developing this idea of a, a Northern Ireland-Scottish a set of links which might include Ireland uh, confederally. I know that um, in Wales, the um, Clyde Cymru is thinking about confederal relations uh, with England after in potential independence. They've, uh, Adam Price has been talking very interestingly about that. 
And you have to think then, of course, about Scottish-English relations, not only in the difficult issue of uh, the border, where you to get Scottish independence soon and have to live beside a hard Brexit, uh, uh, where how do you handle that border? It's going to be a huge issue in any discussion. Um, just as we do vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Northern Ireland Protocol. So um, these futures, I think, are going to be uh, held together. Um, uh, I've looked at this, if you like, analytically rather than as an advocate, uh, but I think, I hope the uh, analysis I've offered helps us to think about uh, the advocacy we might prefer uh, to see uh, closer Irish-Scottish links and to develop uh, these links in a kind of constructive way uh, through meetings such as this. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. It was very interesting. The main things that seem to have come up in, in the chat whilst you've been talking, Paul, are um, um, a discussion about federalism and also um, the big one is the borders. Um, borders are obviously going to be a, a big issue um, I think hyped up perhaps more by Westminster and the, the unionist side. Um, I think a lot of people on, on the independence side don't really see it as a big issue, but yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I fully understand the way it's being hyped. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the rational basis of that argument, I presume, is the, the way the trade flows go. Um, and um, uh, you must, you mean, you, you, I, I don't know how convincing those arguments are about where Scotland's, Scotland's pattern of trade with England compared to uh, Europe or, or, or external trade. Um, uh, and um, uh, it, if you assume the kind of the hardness of the border going through any referendum campaign, uh, that's going to be a difficult one. But there's no, um, I don't, you, you don't have to presume that that border remains hard. Uh, the trouble is, <clears throat> uh, how do you manage that uh, if you have to maintain the integrity of this European single market, uh, which is the issue facing uh, the Irish government and the EU and, and the Northern Ireland authorities in Northern Ireland? Because the one thing that's very clear <clears throat> is, is the determination coming through the EU uh, side in all these negotiations is about protecting that integrity. And if, as Boris Johnson says, the whole point of Brexit was to, to diverge, and if part of the um, um, uh, thinking there is to weaken environmental labour and other standards in order to compete more effectively uh, uh, on the world market and back into Europe, uh, the determination on the European side is to, not to see that happen. So we're facing this uh, if, if it gets highly disruptive with the Northern Ireland Protocol, if the thing breaks down, we're into a no-deal setting, and that would reinstall a border in, in, on the Irish border on land. So it, it's very hard to read the um, British government's attention here, except, I mean, one obvious reading is that, that there's, it's disruptive intent, but it's, it's hard to read how long that would play out for, uh, given their comparative weakness, as I see it, is it short to medium term or, or medium to long term? And that's not, uh, that's one set of judgments to make. Uh, it's, um, 
lots of accidents may happen in such you know a transition and so we may end up with all sorts of undesired consequences so i'm saying this is really messy um uh, uh but not uh, you know not uh, on insoluble um uh, it depends a lot on what happens in the politics of england i suppose yeah mm. okay um Mary McCabe, you have a question? Right. <laughs> um, I would see the problem as being the transition period um, because, um, well, Paul mentioned our exports. It's true we've got, as they keep telling us, 60% of our exports with the UK. But when Ireland became independent, about 90% of their exports were with the UK. It's now down to something like 18%. So um, we're only as in this position with our exports in the UK because we're a captive audience. Um, and and the, the, the fact remains that we've got a, a healthy balance of payment. We, we always export more than we import, unlike the UK. But what I was wondering um, uh, was the, the question of borders. I mean, Norway and Sweden manage their border. Um, the Faroe, Faroes and Denmark, one's in, one's out, UK. Out, out the EU. I know that the problem is because they're all in the single market anyway, but would it help if Scotland had a period of being an EFTA, like being an associate member of the EU, so it had a foot in both camps, so to speak, at least in a transition period? Do you think that would be helpful and we could gradually go into the full EU if we wanted to? Um, I mean, what, what I think that we, from the Scottish point of view, we want to keep the borders, all borders, open as much as possible. Uh, and to me, the, the EFTA thing is maybe worth considering. What does Paul think about that? Yeah, it, it's theoretically plausible uh, and politically, you know, analytically plausible. How politically doable uh, is, is, it, is it in this fraught uh, um, uh, encounter between uh, the Brussels and London uh, with this hard Brexiteer government in London is, is another question. It may be hard to get a hearing and a toleration mm -hmm. during, the, during that time. Uh, this is where Scotland will need uh, allies, including mm -hmm. in London, um, and advocates. Um, and I think, I mean, there are, I'm aware of some moves uh, um, afoot to develop an awareness more than there is now around the European uh, EU member states uh, that at Scottish at Scotland's um, difficulties here, uh, and uh, I think it needs it needs diplomacy now in order to develop that you know case. Uh, uh, now I just say I mean. It, and that is important because uh, the um, uh, in 2017, in April 2017, Enda uh, Kenny, the Irish Taoiseach, got the agreement of the um, uh, European Council uh, that were Northern Ireland to unite with Ireland, it would automatically become a member of the uh, EU, just as East Germany did in mm -hmm. in, in 1990, and that uh, German. Um, memory and precedent was really important because uh, the Irish government uh, was one of the few and in a minority initially uh, um, to support German unification uh, in, in at a December council meeting in 1989. 
And it the next six months from January to uh, July 1990, Ireland had the EU presidency and oversaw a couple of special summits in which German unification was agreed unconditionally uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and um, uh, earning the great um, <clears throat> gratitude of the German government. And I remember very vividly Coles uh, being in Dublin six years later in 1996 during another Irish EU presidency when he said, you stood by us and we will never uh, forget that. And it's true. And therefore, actions and words mm. and diplomacy matter, you know, in, in these kinds of settings. Um, yeah. uh, I think the, the element of legality and due process that is part in the, of the, both the British and the Scottish constitutional culture, you know, uh, are worth emphasizing in this setting. And they're very different to the Spanish one, for example, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you, you know, so I, I think the Scottish, case needs to be heard as much, maybe much more than it already has been, diplomatically around yeah. Europe, you know, yes. Thanks. So we'll go to John Gosling. Uh, I, as you can tell, I, I'm, I was brought up in, 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 in the middle of England, in Birmingham, um, and um, moved to Scotland in 2002, officially. I was coming up before then. Um, one of the things that always confused me, and I still don't understand it, is how on earth um, people voted for Brexit, um, particularly in England. And I, I, I found it very strange. Um, and I read a book by Fintan O'Toole yes. uh, <laughs> called Heroic Failure? Question um, mark. And uh, it led me to wonder, first of all, what you thought about all that, and whether um brexit can in fact be sustained will there not be a revolution what do you think how stable is it how stable is 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 this this brexit do you think in england oh i i i think everything i've said would lead me <laughs> to believe uh, that it's unstable unstabilizing yeah. and likely to be <laughs> unstable and yeah. reflects uh, much deeper processes uh, of uh, uh, in uh, going on in the British state and in the empire that you know the global power that it had before. So yeah. it's an unfolding of very long-term processes, uh, and um, uh, um, I think the uh, so much of the so many of these issues were under discussed or not discussed at all or taken completely for granted uh, in all sorts of stereotypes. Uh, and uh, political mythologies, uh, which Fintan O'Toole explores brilliantly very often yeah. in his work. Um, and he, his background, you know, is as a literary cultural um, yeah. critic, uh, very fine theatre critic, very good literary critic. And he, he has that eye um, uh, in political analysis for the telling, not only the telling phrase, but the telling um, cultural moment, you know, and yeah. So he does that very, very well. Um, uh, but to say that it's destabilizing, uh, I don't think it, that means necessarily that it's incapable of reform or that it has to go in a revolutionary direction. Uh, if you define, you know, break up as revolution, which in many ways, of course, it would be, a re these would, that would be radical 
revolutionary change. Whether it became kind of social revolutionary change is another different kind of dimension. Um, mm. uh, certainly constitutionally a radical change. But the trouble is you've got uh, um, uh, a waning sense of Britishness, as we know, uh, that is the glue that held things together. Austerity has driven stakes into the, the welfare state glue, the post-war uh, social contract that uh, held things together, including with Scotland, obviously. Um, you've got the, uh, I didn't mention, but obviously from seen from Ireland, uh, the huge shift of political affiliation and identity amongst uh, people from an Irish Catholic background in Scotland from the Labour Party to the SNP in the last, mm. last period is, is another huge, another shift which can be related to these, to these ones. And then you've got the, um, uh, the way in which uh, English government in England is so centralised, that's my, one of my... Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's also essential. I mean, you've got the um, <clears throat> uh, the whole ways in which cities uh, and city regions are under underplayed, and again, that reflects back on the party political structure and the constitution structure that they have. So there's an awful lot that needs deep reform and change. Uh, not to mention the House of Lords, all that Westminster apparatus of government. Um, now. Uh, there's a kind of belated realization of this, uh, and I'm uh, and, and, uh, and, and analytically amongst the political class, but I don't see agency of change. I think the agency of change is much more. Well, you can say at the periphery rather than at the centre, but that's unfair. I don't. I don't like to think about Scotland or Ireland or Wales as peripheral. Uh, there, it's a sort of uh, and the nationalism involved, <clears throat> and particularly in Scotland. But I would say, uh, in classical terms, in, in Ireland, the Irish nationalism was an anti-imperial nationalism mm. uh, against that assertion of dominant global power as it uh, manifested itself in Ireland. Uh, well, going way back, of course, as I sketched uh, in colonialism and, uh, and, and dependence, uh, but also in the modern period and uh, um, the 19th into the 20th centuries with empire. Now, Scotland and Ireland experienced empires in very in very different way. Scotland was far more part of empire, as was the northern part of Ireland, um, through that industrialization of empire and the participation in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, the English fallout from this, uh, the hollowing out of that industrialism in the 1970s and 80s is part of these of these big changes. So I, I'm, I'm the big question I keep asking is where is the agency of change yeah. in the UK? And it's hard to see. Uh, and therefore, to some extent, that gap has been filled uh, by constitutional politics, including in Scotland. You know, I, I mm. don't know if that helps you, but... Well, thanks very much. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah, that is very useful, actually, I think. Yeah. It's not a very good outlook, but still. <laughs> no, well, it, well it's a, a, you, you mean, we, what, the, what you know from as an analyst of history and politics is that sometimes things, history speeds up. I mean, the famous remark attributed to Lenin uh, that there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Uh, this was to describe periods of real revolutionary change, but it can describe periods of more gradual change as well. You know.
Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks um, very much. Uh, Bridge. Hi there, Falcher. Welcome, Paul, um, to uh, being virtually in open, if not physically here, and a big warm welcome to Deirdre as well. Here's my, my question. Um, we are still running in the polls in the late 50s with regards to popular opinion as the moved will of the people towards an independent Scotland. And there is no will to grant Scotland uh, a referendum. Putting on your thinking cap and looking at the situation that we are in at the moment, realistically, when do you think we will be starting the negotiations for an independent Scotland? Ooh. Um, um, I'll, let me answer this question by thinking <clears throat> comparatively again. In this working group that I've been involved in uh, from University College London, um, we're having to examine the circumstances in which a Northern Ireland Secretary of State would call a referendum on Irish unification. Now, they're obliged to do that if it appears that there is a majority for it. Um, there's also discretionary power, but thinking about the evidence that would be brought to bear in, the, in, the, um, in any such decision. Well, you could think about uh, elections, including parliamentary or assembly elections. Uh, you could think about a vote in, in, in parliament. Uh, you could think about polling. Uh, and you could think about um, um, uh, uh, the makeup of coalitions. Uh, and I think you're, you know, there's no uh, specification of the detail of that in the Northern Ireland example. But I think uh, the, the lessons to be drawn there and some of the informal soundings we took on it we, in this working group uh, would point to a sustained period of um, of majority sentiment in favour of a um, of a vote on Irish unification, and this would need to be sustained across those pieces of evidence uh, in a way that's um, convincing and, and suddenly becomes uh, uh, un, unstoppable, if you like, you know, towards a decision. And any some of the politicians we've talked to have said. Look, uh, politics can happen that way. You can, you suddenly, you make a decision because that evidence is there. Now, I've been thinking about, and I mentioned that there are these commonalities now with referendums and borders and EU membership between Scotland and Ireland. Um, the government in London says no, uh, it, it's, it's settled for a generation. Uh, but people we've spoken to and I've spoken to, uh, believe that were there to be that kind of sustained evidence across a span of um, of, of, of political arenas, uh, it would become at a certain point impossible to resist. Therefore, you would go towards a referendum. Now, I think that's it. It, it kind of it becomes an issue of political judgment. There's no dogmatism there. Um, in between, you might, of course, have general elections uh, called by Johnson. Uh, I, I, I think that there's been whisperings of this. It might suit him to go after the COVID thing to get a, a reinforced majority and therefore to be able to say, let us say, after the Scottish uh, elections in May, uh, that he, we has a, he has a mandate to trump that. And that this would be politics, raw politics. Now, 
I, then you're left, you're, you're left with what, where do you go from there? Do you go in the Catalan direction, people ask? Do you go, some people ask, uh, but dulcetly, uh, do you go in the kind of, do you have to start thinking about a violent direction as happened in Ireland? Or, or does that undermine the, your legitimacy in the wider European setting? So I, you're into, these periods of change are, can be very fraught and, and difficult. I, I, so I can't predict. Again, I would suggest that we, it helps to think about, think in scenario terms that you put, I put up three or four potential futures there. You need to examine those systematically and think them through, and then you're somewhat better prepared for them, perhaps. Hmm. Hi. Um, Roger McKenzie, um, you've got a few things in the chat. Um, would you like to, to talk to us? Where are you, Roger? I think Scotland's best bet is to leave the UK first rather than wait on any Irish unity vote. Uni yes, unity vote. Um, if we wait for Ireland to agree that it's leaving the UK, I think we'll have missed the boat totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, 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 even though we're, we're, we're drawing parallels and making, uh, um, making comparisons, uh, there's no, um, uh, I don't think it's great political competition between Ireland and Scotland in this respect. I mean, who gets there first, as it were? Uh, it's very, the dynamics, even though they overlap with one another, are not the same. They're not driven in the same way. So I, I, um, I think the, the much more immediate set of issues are arise in Scotland uh, more than in, in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, were the, on the other hand, were the, were the um, was the protocol to be, to, to, to collapse, uh, you'd get a, a political, and, and were power sharing to collapse in Northern Ireland, you'd get a, um, a, a political crisis there, the imposition, re-imposition of direct rule, and you might get uh, in Northern Ireland opinion, there's an important, very important group now uh, of people who say when they're asked in uh, in polling uh, what religion they are, they say they're neither, neither Catholic nor Protestant. When they're asked what affiliation they have, they, they say they're other, not unionist nor nationalist. And um, uh, these are 30 to 40 percent of people now, including um, particularly younger electors, many of them, of people like that don't vote. They get mobilized though into referendum campaigns and they're often quite highly educated. Um, so it's, these are the, um, and I think there's, there's similarly unmobilized groups within the Scottish electorate, as, as you know, as we saw in 2014. So these are very, these are volatile entities uh, even though we're watching one another more closely politically, I think the driving forces are, are distinct, you know, in, in the two places. And therefore, to answer your, I mean, I, I don't know anyone in Scotland who's say, saying we, we must wait until something happens in Ireland. And I don't think any of the nationalists in the north are doing the same thing. They're, they're more analysing than preferring that way. Um, Colin. Your gut feeling, Paul, on and what the polls are saying in Ireland on the, the public's opinion of unification, because the, the, the feeling we get from your leading politicians is they're 
pretty much playing it down. Um, so what, what, what do you think personally and what are the polls say? Um, um, an, an, an interesting, a very important dynamic uh, that we're trying to examine in our research is um, to understand if there is um, uh, a movement at the base among citizens, uh, which is more pronounced and perhaps more rapid than amongst the political you know, leaderships, um, what, what's driving that? And one of the things that conceivably might be driving it, uh, let's say through the COVID crisis, which is a health crisis, we have a, um, you know, a, a developed health system in the Republic, which combines public and private in a way that's very distinctive, comes out of the history, comes out of church involvement uh, um, in, in social welfare provision and health provision, uh, but is now increasingly dysfunctional for a much more modern and wealthy, a better organized society. So we have a huge issue of health reform. You have a a lot of admiration in the Republic for the National Health Service uh, in England. A lot of Irish people would know it and know that it's free at the point of, uh, you know, free at the point in principle anyway. So see that as a, um, a, a way to improve things. So if people north and south see unity as a way to a better, a fairer, a newer uh, Ireland, that is a kind of ground force uh, working towards unification. If if, um, if through a, a crisis in, in the European arrangements through the protocol, for example, uh, and the way it might be driven by, by uh, <clears throat> a disruptive Brexiteer London, if suddenly people say, look, we have to maintain access to European markets and want, want to do that and want to do it rapidly, again, that would shift things. Um, and there's some evidence of, of those shifts happening, but it's not, it's early days on that yet. And um, where you to get on, you know, where you to get a, um, uh, a lot depends here on economic performance, North and South, um, whether people would see uh, the issue of taxation and the, U the British subsidy is brought into bear in the same way that perhaps it is in Scotland also, uh, and the way that would be negotiated out. Uh, so until these are clarified and debated much more and researched much more, uh, it's hard to say. But my gut feeling is that um, the, my, I mean, the driving forces I've identified in the UK, insofar as they bear on Ireland, North and South, are driving people towards a much more uh, articulated sense of what unification would involve. And if in that setting uh, you can uh, link together dissatisfaction with the status quo, uh, with the hope of change in a, in a transformed Ireland, well, you may get a momentum that is becomes much more powerful than the, the political elites understand. Thank you. Um, um, you spoke earlier, Paul, about uh, quite a bit, you talked quite a bit about federalism and confederalism. Um, and spoke about the need to um, devolve more power. It seems to me that not not only in, in from Westminster, but even in Scotland, that power is being centralised more and more. Yes. Um, how do we stop that? I mean, if you if you look to the Scandinavian countries where 
then much more the power is devolved so much more to the local areas. How do, how do we counter that, even from our own government? Very good question. I, 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 I've written um, I've done a, bit, a good lot of work on uh, the nature of local government um, in, in, in Ireland. <clears throat> and I, there's a, an, an important and interesting league table of local government powers around Europe amongst about 38 or 40 European states. And the last time I looked, Ireland was down at the bottom of it with Moldova. Um, uh, the UK was only a few points up. I think in Scotland, you have this disjunction between centralized and localized power as well. It's, it's part of the system in the UK over the years that uh, we've experienced. And it's been reinforced um, uh, by uh, during Irish independence. Uh, um, <clears throat> a lot of the trouble in, in Irish governance is to do with the lack of such powers, including in housing and uh, environmental stuff at local level. So it's, it's, it's one, just to say that you get your independence, you know, at, at state level doesn't mean that you guarantee your, your democracy at local level. You have to fight for that additionally. Uh, and I think that, um, well, I, I, if one wants new ingredients to be injected into an Irish constitutional debate, I would hope it would be from this direction too. There's some evidence of that happening in the Green Party, some of the uh, left-wing parties. I'm not sure about Sinn Féin, but it, it, it could happen there. And certainly there's a very strong case to be made for it uh, against in, in a more better educated society and richer society, more well-off society that needs to do environmental uh, things, for example, at a much more local level. I, I, I'm sure there are similar cases to be made in, in Scotland and of course in England too, because uh, the nature of local democracy in England has been, been really hollowed out. You know, And if you compare it to continental experience in France, in Germany, uh, all around uh, um, not just in federal systems, but in, you know, in, in systems like, such as the French one or in Italy, uh, you see how much more power there is to be had at local level when you really go after it. Yeah, I think you have to get um, the actual politicians that we vote in have to be um, the sort that won't become used to power and like once you've got a bit of power, you want more power. Yes, yeah. That's one of the problems that maybe we have. Uh, Maggie, you've got your hand up. It's been, thank you very much, Paul. It's been a very, very interesting discussion. Um, I, I'm um, the chair of the uh, 1916 Rising Centenary Committee, Scotland, and we, did a, and have been doing a whole number of events since 2016. And uh, just after the referendum on Brexit, uh, Michael H D Higgins came to Scotland to meet the Irish organizations in Scotland, yeah. the Irish diaspora. We had a wonderful meeting with him and a sort of cultural event with the Scottish government at night. And it, it's become very, very uh, clear to me that um, the relationship with Ireland 
um, as we know, is very long established and historic, but it's incredibly important for all the reasons that you've laid out. I mean, in terms of the relationship with Germany and so on, I, I think that relationship is something that we absolutely have to cherish and develop. And um, I, I think it's it's it, in, in the in the 1916 committee. I mean, one of the things we've tried to do is to do a bit of education about really these old links and commonalities, as well as a bit of historical education about about the, all the issues around the rising. And obviously, uh, we have um, James Connolly as a Irish Scot. Yeah. And we also had Margaret Skinnerder, who I've done a bit of work around. Margaret Skinnerder, who was an Irish, a Scottish-Irish um, Scot from Coatbridge. And, but the, the big difficulty, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of events, we've done quite a lot of work, we've publicised and so on, but it is very difficult in the west of Scotland because of the depth of unionism and a a vicious kind of orange, vicious kind of orangeism that every so often erupts and shows itself. But really, I, I think that the Irish-Scottish relationship will be hugely helpful when we reach the point of deciding that we're going for independence. Um, because I, I don't think there's a, a chance in hell that the Westminster government will ever agree to it. I think we have to reach a point um, when we decide, brave people decide we're going to go for it. I mean, like Connolly did at a particular point, now is the time we have to do it or it will elude us for a long, long time. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what, what you think about that, but um, that's certainly my personal view. Mm -hmm. Gosh, wow. Um, well, that phrase uh, that it will elude us and there are historical moments. Um, one of the phrases we use in our research is the, the phrase constitutional moment. Um, and moment, that use of the word moment comes out of Hegel and continental philosophy. And it can be a long moment. I mean, it's one, it's a, <laughs> um, but that they are, um, um, uh, uh, that they are um, uh, his historically defined and particular uh, opportunities yes. is is the knowledge of all all revolutionaries and all you know uh, political change involves risk and you have to be able to recognise the conjunctures. Um, now, um, uh, I did. I, in this school of politics that I'm involved in in UCD, <clears throat> we've just done a big um, uh, handbook with Oxford University Press, Handbook of Irish Politics. So I've written the, the chapter on British-Irish relations. And because it was confined um, to the uh, republics, the politics of a republic, not, not including Northern Ireland, I had to include a lot of Northern Ireland material uh, in the chapter. Uh, but I started off the chapter by remembering uh, a colleague of mine who worked with me on several of the books we did on Britain and Europe and Ireland, <coughs> Ronan Fanning, who was professor of history in, um, uh, in UCD. Yeah. Uh, 
and his he wrote a fine book uh, um, about the uh, Irish War of Independence and a fine biography of De Valera before he died. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he drew on his long-standing study of British 19th and 20th century politics in relation to Ireland to draw the conclusion that violence uh, was inevitable. It was, uh, it, it was in, sorry, in, not inevitable, inescapable uh, for Ireland to achieve what it did uh, in, its, in terms of its independence, because that British imperial force was not going to concede beyond the home rule uh, offering. Yeah. And that was pretty minimalist, if you look at yeah. it in comparison, uh, yeah. was not going to concede the kind of independence, even the dominion status that was achieved and then built on without the study, without the use of violence. <clears throat> now that comes from a particular analysis of that particular conjuncture, that moment, if you like, in British history, which was the high imperial moment, remember. Yeah. And of course, that was uh, the British ruling class at the time, uh, is that the consequences for empire of, 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 of letting Ireland go, as it were, peacefully, um, uh, notwithstanding 1916 and the provocation that they saw involved there, because we went then uh, thereafter through 1918, you know, uh, we had the elections, you know, yeah. and it was it, the consequences of the, so, what you have to ask yourself is whether that imperial conjuncture is finds its equivalent now in the in the at the tail end of empire, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm not going to I, I'm not going to answer the question directly. I don't know. I mean, I I could well say, and anyone would say, just as Irish nationalists said uh, from the first Dáil Éireann when they sat in Dublin and said, "Look." We're not going to Westminster. We're going to try and do this peacefully. But they reached the conclusion amongst themselves that they had to do it militarily as well. And yeah. that is a very difficult and finely judged, uh, you know, moment yes. Yes. in time. Uh, whether you reach that in Scotland is a big, huge question. I, I can't answer that for you. No, no. Thank you so much. Um, Andrew Simpson. Hi Paul, thanks again for tonight. I was just wondering um, if there was a successful plebiscite vote in Scotland this year, do you think this would be more, would this, would this put more pressure on the UK government and would it be accepted internationally? A successful, if it was held after, if it was called by the Scottish government, yeah. Yeah, as part of as part of the elections this year. Well, I would have thought yes is the answer, but uh, again, just let me go back to nineteen nineteen and nineteen eighteen. Uh, what did Ireland do? They went to the um, you know the Versailles Treaty. They, yeah. they weren't allowed in, in, in uh, because the uh, British had done their diplomacy with uh, Wilson. And it was President Wilson who didn't who didn't accept that the Irish would have a, a local standee at at that at that meeting. Uh, uh, if there's a, a vote, if, if if the nationalists get a majority in the May elections and call a referendum and win it, you've got a um, something equivalent to the 1918 electoral mandate in Ireland. You have to go and diplomatize that, uh, legalize that, legitimize it. Uh, I, I would have thought that's a very strong card to play. 
And as I mentioned in, in the Northern Ireland context, it's a, it's a democratic card after all. Um, Absolutely. Where it goes to, again, you have to, that's why you have a big need for a diplomatic apparatus to deliver on this. Uh, it, it may need, you know, it may need qualitative change. You also need, you, you need allies who can multiply your voices around Europe at that point. Thank you. Edward. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. Great, great discussion tonight. It's a sort of long-winded question, so if you could bear with me for a, a minute or two. Um, I was brought up in the 60s when Celtic were doing well in the European Cup, etc. And a lot was made of the fact of because of the success, violence in Northern Ireland didn't spread to the west coast of Scotland. Bearing in mind what has been said by unionist and paramilitaries in the last week or so, can you see violence erupting again in Northern Ireland and then spreading to mainly the west coast of Scotland? Gosh. Um, Thank you. All the evidence that I know of um, uh, says that loyalism is not a completely spent force militarily, but it's minuscule. Uh, there might be 200 people involved in some of these organizations. Um, a lot of them are to do with, with uh, street gangs and drug, you know, semi-criminal stuff. And that's well, well enough known. <clears throat> um, the, the major mass organizations have been stood down, but, uh, the DUP in particular has handled all this crisis over the protocol so badly. Uh, their links with the Tories uh, in, in London have been so um, uh, uh, incompetent uh, um, and they've been ditched so much that they're very worried about the electoral outcomes next year and in the, in the assembly elections next year. And the polling shows that they're falling away and they're bleeding away support both to more intransigent unionists uh, um, uh, and also to the other group that I mentioned. So they're in a so they're inclined very much to stoke this question and to use it then as a as a kind of threat in dealing with London, dealing with others. So there's a kind of artificial aspect to this. The trouble is, this is, you know. If you let this go on and you don't respond to it uh, politically, it can it can become it's, it can become self-fulfilling. Arguably, I don't see much evidence for that uh, yet, and I think uh, there'd be so much um, uh, uh, re reaction against any resort to violence, including from within the Protestant community itself. That is probably containable and the shift would happen much more towards uh, opening up the question of unification or alternative futures rather than in that direction now that that's these are just my political hunches so i don't see much real potential uh for that kind of spillover you mentioned but but if the british state uh, re regards all these developments as existential crises remember they've stoked these uh, waters too. Um, 
one of the things that Brandon Lewis did as Secretary of State was drop the agreement that was reached uh, last year uh, to, re, um, uh, to um, handle the question of historic crimes. Uh, and uh, one of the, uh, the, the sets of lobbyings he was getting was from the British Army. Uh, this big loyalist disquiet at that because the lawyers were working with the British Army uh, in stoking a lot of this violence uh, during the Troubles. Uh, so that kind of um, um, deep state stuff could come into play. I, I presume it could come into play in Scotland as well. I mean, th this is an existential crisis for uh, the rulers uh, of the UK. Uh, and some of them are, are, are exceedingly unscrupulous and untrustworthy as we've seen. So and that's a, uh, something that I would say, but I would be reflecting a lot of Irish opinion on this, let us say. That's scary. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, carry on. No, it, it is scary, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, so I don't rule it out. I'm just saying uh, the, the, the driving forces again of this may not simply come from street loyalism. It may come from very other different directions. Can I, can I add something? The, 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 the word that you used was troubles. Yes. Uh, troubles in Northern Ireland. Is it not more the case it's a civil war within the UK? Gosh. <laughs> I have to have reached that stage. Well, <laughs> maybe. In the 60s and 70s and 80s, I mean. Well, it, uh, civil conflict, where when does civil conflict become civil war? I mean, I, I didn't know. Um, uh, the troubles were, the, you know, the, it's the colloquial term we, we use for the, the violence from the 70s through to the 90s in the North of Ireland that was uh, resolved, uh, resolved by the 98 agreement, which is a very sophisticated agreement, still worth holding on to in most of its elements and which still would be held on to in the United Ireland because there's a very interesting important commitment there to the values of minority protection and human rights that would uh, last into United Ireland, last through the transfer of sovereignty. Uh, that's one of its, you know, its abiding uh, strengths. Scottish independence, what happens to the uh, the nuclear uh, weaponry. Uh, what happens to the Security Council seat? Uh, I mean, it, it really is, it's a huge, a huge issue for the British state. Uh, much more so, it seems to me, than the Northern Ireland issue is. Um, if, you know, if you're going to make that kind of comparison, um, uh, um, uh, it is far more a perceived interest at stake uh, for that ruling, you know, caste and that uh, regime, if you like, uh, uh, governing regime than there is in, in the Northern Ireland setting. And that's why, you know, that's why people from Scotland, there, there is something unique about Northern Ireland that is, has a genuine sense um, and that's recognised and the phrase is used, the, term, the word is used in the, you know, in the relevant um, um, treaties. Uh, 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 and it's used consensually. And I think the Scotland is distinct from that. Is it, it's not unique in the same kind of way. Um, uh, and wouldn't, I don't think, 
uh, I don't think uh, the governing class in Westminster would allow the word unique to be used about Scotland the way they use it about Northern Ireland. Does that mm. uh, Lynn Jones? I wonder about the symbolism of the monarchy, which I think was uh, quite important in a uh, hundred years ago. And uh, the monarchy is uh, <clears throat> a symbolic loyalty to the monarchy has still been a strong feature of loyalists in Northern Ireland. Um, with the not too in the not too distant future, a change in the monarchy um, coming up and its shaky status in the public esteem. Does this have any relevance at all, do you think? Or is it merely a, you know, a sideshow? I just wonder. Gosh. I'm sure it I'm, I'm sure it does have a relevance. The weakening, if, the, if, if it happens, uh, on the, the, the monarchy's legitimacy uh, for the, the governing regime in the UK is really central. And if you think about sovereignty, I was talking about sovereignty, where does it reside? It resides in principle there. Uh, but I was uh, participating in a very interesting discussion the other day uh, in the University of Maynooth uh, with Gavin Esler, this, the, who's written this book on on the UK's future, and uh, uh, one of the participants was Bridget Laffin, who's a, an Irish political scientist working now on the European University Institute in Florence. But she made the point very interestingly about the uh, functioning powers of the British monarchy when it comes to dealing with the British government, comparing it to the Italian president who she's been observing closely and saying that, in fact, the Italian presidency functionally has much more of a role to play in, in, in um, um, uh, um, orchestrating government formation in Italy than perhaps the Queen has, Queen Elizabeth has, in the similar setting in, in, the, uh, in the UK. Actually, that the government executive power in the UK is much stronger than it is in Italy. Uh, in which case, you know, comparing function by function, the Italian presidency is much stronger role than the, the British monarchy has in that kind of executive power element. Uh, whereas the symbolic role is huge, and I'm sure it's strong in Scotland. Um, is, is this not why, I mean, Salmond a number of years ago was talking about the, the different, the four or five unions as distinct from the political independence, including the monarchy, I don't know. I mean, the in 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 the north of Ireland, the monarchy is strong. Uh, um, how much across the communities, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's been much work done on that. There's a kind of sentimental attachment, as there is in the Republic, uh, to Queen Elizabeth, and her visit to Ireland was a hugely symbolic event. Um, I, I mean, this was the height of the symbolic power available to that monarchy. And the return visit by Michael D. Higgins as, a couple of years later was equally, you know, equally important. And that's remembered. Um, but in the passing and in the transition in the monarchy, it opens up questions of a difficult transition in the middle of a constitutional moment for the UK of transition can add up. I don't know, you, you, you have more insight on this than I would, um, but it, it certainly, it adds to the ingredients of destabilization, it seems to me. 
uh, black swan is an issue we deal with in scenario building. An obvious one would be a sudden transition in the monarchy. Um, Ian Cass. Thank you very much. Um, great discussion. Thanks very much for leading it, Paul. Superb. Um, what I would like to uh, just, I, I, I'm concerned that we're all getting too concerned about what might happen uh, on the dark side of what we're trying to achieve. And what I would like to point out is things like we should be thinking about how mobilizing our young people, and we're going to do that, we should be thinking about how we mobilize that to music, art, drama, sport. I keep thinking of, you know, your Celtic connections, 784. These things have much more impact. And, and we should be trying to look at all the positives. In many cases, you know, Celtic connections, brought together musicians from Scotland, Ireland, Canada, USA, New Zealand, wherever. And boy, did they have an impact. And that's always, when we work with people like the Irish and the Americans and the Canadians, we start to go places. And up here in Orkney, we work hard on the Scandinavian connection. By heavens, that's strong. And I want to take all that music, art, drama, sport, into all these conversations, but in doing that, try to convince Denmark to speak up on our behalf and Sweden to speak up on our behalf. And we yeah. should be always trying to enlist the happy side and trying to enlist our Irish cousins because they'd be a huge help to us. I think that's great. I mean, if you're right. And I think you've, you've an open book on that uh, with, with Ireland. Uh, you've all the channels and far more channels than existed before, perhaps culturally, uh, to do that. Uh, and um, uh, well, I, I, I was hoping that when the Deirdre of the Sorrows story is an example of, uh, of, of a resurrection there, those plays haven't been done, you know, the Yeats Sing plays. Uh, they'd be worth thinking about doing in terms of high drama, but there are lots of other connections too. And I think also your 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 point about Sweden and uh, and Denmark really interesting, uh, because I know they have a big debate in Scotland about Nordic links uh, as you know uh, uh, as complementing Irish and other links, uh, and we have of course the old Viking connections <laughs> uh, in common as well, if you want to go back historically. Uh, but these exactly are the kinds of places you need to go to for support. Um, uh, um, uh, when it comes to the, the diplomacy I mentioned that's going to be required uh, to, to legitimize any uh, votes in favor of independence. Yes, I perhaps you'd have said, Paul, I'm speaking to you from Orkney, which is a strong Norse connection, Scandinavian connection. And we're very proud of that. And we actually have a Norway, Norway Society Association. And we're the only place outside of Norway that celebrate Norway's Independence Day. Yes. All of these things need to be harnessed. Yes. And we've got all the talent we ever need. There's tons of them on this call. That if we all got together and did something positive along these lines, we, it would have a huge impact. It happens in my house. I'm married to a Norwegian and we celebrate 2nd of May. 
Excellent. Well done. Well done. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Norman. Well, Dublin founded by the Vikings, of course. I wanted to, to just say this, this thing, talk about violence, and that, that would be a, a, a terrible mistake. Why don't we look towards Gandhi and all the, the non-violent civil disobedience type uh, movements that there have been, you know? Think about Leipzig during the, the fall of the war, so on. How can we get learn from global lessons, of which there must be many, uh, I know that the Scots aren't very demonstrative. They're never going to come out and, uh, like uh, we saw a million people in the streets of Barcelona. Uh, do you have any ideas that you can point us to where, where non-violent civil dis disobedience could, could be uh, thought about? Well, I, I think your what I would call your civic nationalism, uh, the preparedness, the thoroughness with which uh, the work was done ahead of the 2014 referendum, for example, uh, the all of the gradual but strong and very determined build-up of, uh, of the sentiment behind um, uh, Scotland's autonomy and independence is really impressive seen from afar. The, um, the nature of that nationalism, the outgoing nature of that nationalism uh, is another real, you know, str huge strength. Uh, it doesn't, it's not uh, just demonstrated by street numbers, it's demonstrated by the old, um, I would say, I was going to say Republican traditions that are in, in, in involved in civic nationalism in, in, in Scotland, um, civic republicanism, if you like, that, that kind of tradition uh, is 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 there? Therefore, it's the mobilisation of that that is impressive to um, uh, impressive internationally. Uh, I think the um, uh, uh, I talked about the moment a hundred years ago for Ireland. It was at the high imperial moment. It, it's not the same kind of moment now, and therefore the uh, the the the, the, the nonviolent methods are much more uh, convincing. And there is also, uh, for, for all the quarrels with uh, and arguments with London, there is the principle of consent is conceded by them, which is not elsewhere. And it's, it's a matter of getting that legalized, put legally and legitimated, again, that comes into play with, with you. So I think, you know, um, I don't think there's any automatic read off at all from the Irish history of a hundred years ago to your story now. It's a very different context and setting. That's what I would say. I was struck by your quote from Lenin about uh, decades that happen in a week. And uh, there's a line of suddenly everything was changed, changed utterly. Now, I, we don't really know what happened to Jericho. We know that there was a sudden turn, 180 degree turn in circumstances. Yes. I think when we're near a tipping point like that, that suddenly things will change. Yeah. I've done a fair amount of work in, in, in this analysis of crises in political science and, and history. And there's a, a good lot of theorizing and some very good work on it. But it always does involve this notion of tipping points of sudden shifts, which accumulate and suddenly change. 
and then set a new kind of paradigm, if you like. And that's something that is a kind of elementary um, lesson to be drawn from historical you know, understanding. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, right. Well, has anybody else got any questions? I have one sort of parting thought, set of thoughts. Uh, we have to, I mean, we, in Ireland, thinking about these changes, and I mentioned the work I've been doing on unionism. Uh, unionism in the north of Ireland is in a bind at the moment. It it doesn't know it. It's up a up a, a, a side alley, really. It it needs to to be able to get to be helped to get out of that to talk about futures. Uh, including, um, as I mentioned, confederal futures beyond the union even, but futures through this transition um, uh, where they're going to have to win arguments or lose them. And unless they engage, and we're having this discussion about Irish referendums, uh, a lot of them refuse to engage with the discussion and research we're doing, because they say that only helps the the kind of unity argument along. But if you think about what's going to happen in these referendums we've been discussing, uh, either unionism wins the argument or independence or unity win the argument and that's going to, they're going to be engaged. So it's, we might as well try and do this in a civil way and try and convince people who are going to shift uh, that that can happen. And anything you can do from Scotland to engage with Northern unionism with whom you've lots and lots of uh, cultural connections uh, uh, and encourage them to take civic nationalism more seriously and uh, understand that we have a kind of common future, whatever the outcome, um, the better, you know. So I, I think that's the kind of the good manners, if you like, of our, uh, of the search for alternative futures and constitutional futures. If it's done civilly, uh, we come out the other end in a much better place, I think, if we can manage that. I think it's, in, it's interesting, Paul, when you, you talk about Irish, the Irish unity people. It's, am, am I right to think it's actually the opposite to what we think of, of as unionists in Scotland? Unionists in Scotland want, want to stay with Westminster, but unity people in, in Northern Ireland want to join with Ireland, is that right? That's right, yes, yeah. Right, anybody else want to chip in before we leave? Well, I think we'll, we'll close the meeting now then. Okay, bye bye. Thank you. You're listening to Indie Live Radio, and we've just reached the end of this week's edition of Changing Minds Moving Forwards. It was brought to you by Gasroots Open with Dr Paul Gillespie of University College Dublin. If you'd like to find out more about the Grassroots Open Group, they have their own website, have a look for that, and they're on Facebook as well. We hope you enjoyed the programme this week. It's on every Wednesday at 11am. If you've missed any of them, you can find all our back editions on SoundCloud and Podbean. Search for Scottish Independence Podcasts and you'll find us there.